Welcome, welcome, welcome into A Seminarian and Friends, a podcast where my friends ask me their questions about Jesus, scripture, the church, or theology. My name is Kevin Gray, and I'm the seminarian who's probably in a class that addresses their quandaries. Today's question comes from a good friend in my small group at church. He asked if we know the actual birth date of Jesus Christ. Now, assumed in his question is the assertion that our Lord was not born on December 25th. And that's exactly what I have found. But before we get to why that is, I want to share something that I find fascinating. According to the History Channel, his birth was not celebrated until AD 336 in Rome. So for the first 300 years of the early church, they focused on the resurrection by celebrating Easter every year and not by remembering or trying to pin down a date for his birth. And this is actually the pattern that we see in scripture. So as the apostles started writing epistles or letters to the various churches that had been formed uh, after Christ's resurrection, we see a lot of information and time spent talking about the resurrection because, I mean, that's the most pivotal moment in history and less time on the birth of Christ. I think, in part, that is to emphasize that Christ didn't come into existence right when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but pre-existed before the foundation of the world and actually created the world and is superior and before all things. So... As the epistles were written to the various churches, the apostles focused on the resurrection and its implications and why we need to believe it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks a lot about the theological implications and he tried to prove that Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead. And one way he did this was... Some scholars disagree. I, I think the most consensus view is that these verses, 15, 3 through 11, were a creed or a song or a hymn that had been circulating throughout the early church at this time. But regardless of, he, of if he wrote it himself or just quoted something that had already been circulating, Paul talks a lot about proving that the resurrection happened. So he said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, also in accordance with the scriptures. And more than that, he appeared to Peter, whom he called Kephas in accordance with the Greek for his name, and then to the rest of the 12 apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers or Christians uh, at one time. They were all gathered together. And when Paul wrote this letter, most of these 500 brothers were still alive. And then Jesus appeared to his own half-brother James. And eventually he appeared in glory in the sky to Paul himself. So we get all of these attempted proofs by people that you could ask about at that time hey, did you actually see the risen Christ? And they could have said yes, uh, because they believed that they did. 
they also could have said no, but none of these people that Paul quoted uh, believed that they hadn't seen him. So we have good proof about the resurrection. But back to his birth, we don't get a lot of information about his birth. We get two perspectives on his birth story. One in Luke 1 and 2, and one in Matthew 1 and 2. A little bit different elements in each story, uh, but the same story. And using the two different stories in the Gospels, scholars have tried to piece together a timeline about when it could have happened, both in terms of year and the day. For example, Elizabeth was an old woman married to Zechariah. For all her life, she had been barren, never had any children, but one day the angel Gabriel appeared to her husband, Zechariah, and said, your wife is going to conceive and have a son. And this son ended up being John the Baptist, who was the voice calling in the wilderness, as Isaiah predicted, for the Messiah. This is found in Luke 1, verses 5 through 26. And then Mary, a couple verses later, conceived Jesus of the Holy Spirit in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So that's clue number one. Clue number two, Matthew chapter two tells us of the prophesied star of Bethlehem. This was predicted all the way in Numbers 24 of happening. And so in Matthew two, it tells of this celestial occurrence appearing. And this was the sign that the Magi from the East saw and followed until they met the baby King Jesus for the first time and bowed with the frankincense gold and myrrh. So some scientists have tried to figure out when that star would have appeared and try to piece together from that clue. Clue number three was there was a census that was sent out by Quirinius that was mentioned in Luke 2 verses 1 and 2. And this was what sent Joseph and Mary from their hometown of Nazareth to Bethlehem, which was called the city of David, and that's where Christ was born. Another clue was that in a couple verses later, in Luke 2, verses 8 through 9, Luke mentions shepherds out herding flocks by night. Now, if, if this had happened in December, maybe the shepherds wouldn't have been out. So that gave a clue to some scholars about figuring out the, the month that Christ was born. And finally, there was a massacre. King Herod, who was ruling at the time, was very jealous. And he heard from the Magi that, that Christ the Messiah, the true king of Israel, had been born. And he wanted to protect his throne. So he ordered the massacre of every son, ages 1 to 2. And that's in Matthew 2, verse 16. So scholars had, had taken have taken all of these clues and tried to piece together some proposals about when Christ actually was born. So going back to the Elizabeth clue, some say that Christ had to have been born in September based on the timeline of when Elizabeth conceived and then six months later Mary conceived. Others look at the star of Bethlehem that appeared in the sky and have come up with this very specific June 17th in the year 2 before Christ, based on that star. 
Others have looked at the shepherd appearance, like I mentioned earlier, and said, well, no, they wouldn't have been herding their flocks in December. It had to have happened in the springtime because that's when they did that. Now, there has been some pushback about some of these events. Some have said that there wasn't a man named Quirinius who ruled at that time, and others have pushed back and said there is no record about a census happening during this time frame. But numerous proposals exist about how we can reconcile the evidence that we have and the biblical account we have. So one of these is that the thought of Jewish writers inventing a myth about Jews obeying commands from the hated Roman government is illogical and purposeless. They wouldn't have done it because they hate the Romans and there was no reason to do it. So it seems reasonable to assume that that happened. And then if they had invented a myth like these scholars think might have happened, they probably would have made it a much more grandiose and pro-Judaism pro myth than it is. It's pretty sober in the details that are included. Nothing seems to have been exaggerated or any of that. And in addition, Luke's language as he writes his account suggests that he was differentiating from a different census, one that possibly he mentioned in the second part of his letter to Theophilus, which is the book of Acts. Luke acts as a two-part letter to what many scholars believe to be a real person named Theophilus. This census was mentioned in Acts chapter 5 verse 37. So he's apparently assuming that his readers had a, an understanding of some of these events and wanted to specify which census he was talking about. In addition, it's not implausible that Roman leaders would want counts of their citizens for tax purposes. It's not out of character for the Romans to have done this. Now, it raises questions about why there were no records of this one, but the potential fact that no records exist of this does not mean that the census itself didn't happen. And then there's a website called Associates for Biblical Research, and they propose several ways that the biblical accounts can actually be corroborated with the evidence that we have. We don't have time to go into all of them, but you should check it out. So what's clear is that we don't have one standard definitive date for when Christ was born. So then the question is begged, why did the church adopt December 25? According to the History Channel, the church settled on that date after Constantine rose to power and then sanctioned Christianity as the religion of the empire. And he did that to overtake the popular pagan festival, which celebrated the fictional birth date of some unconquered sun. Sun is in the star that the earth rotates around, which happened on the winter solstice, which is the shortest day of the year. And he wanted to remove the pagan holiday and replace it with a Christian holiday by celebrating the true birth of the eternal and victorious son of God, Jesus Christ. Now that's a good stopping point to kind of fix our eyes on Jesus, as the author of Hebrews says. Who is Jesus? And why have I focused so much these last few weeks on this person named Jesus? So first, his name, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the covenant name that God gives Moses in the burning bush in Exodus. So that's what the Jews called him. But over time, they decided that they didn't want to blaspheme the name of God by saying it too many times. They wanted to keep it holy. So they started transcribing it not as Yahweh, but as Lord. So Jesus the name Jesus is Yahweh saves. And then Christ is the Greek word translated from the Hebrew Messiah, which in English is anointed one. There's a lot of Jewish implication for anointed one. Kings were anointed with oil when they were installed. There's a lot of imagery about the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus and anointing him. We get that picture at his baptism in Matthew and Mark. So he is completely filled with the divine Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And for years and years and years, since the fall of Adam, Jews were looking out and waiting for this promised one who would come and restore all things. The name Messiah was the name given to this person. So Jesus is the one who saves. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is God's only begotten, uncreated, divine son from eternity. So the Bible teaches that there is one God who exists everlasting to everlasting, but this one uncreated, all-powerful God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the divine Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, which means he is God himself. The apostles used various ways to describe him. One of my favorites is John's use of the logos, the word. Jesus is with God and is God in the beginning, which means he has a claim not just to the name Jesus, but to the divine name Yahweh. But then in his birth that we talked about earlier, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and became fully human. He didn't get rid of his divine attributes, so he remained omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all of the omnis, while adding a human nature onto his. Now, Philippians 2 talks about his humbling, even to the point of death, death on a cross. But that doesn't mean that he emptied himself completely and, and forsook his divine nature. Rather, he added a human nature to his divine nature so that in the person of Jesus, there is a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. We can't comprehend it, but by faith we believe it because that's what scripture teaches. So in addition, this Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, created everything. So he's the creator of heaven and earth. He was present with the Father at creation. And, and scripture says that he is the one through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. 
he is the redeemer, which means a redemption is like buying back. So something happened with humanity, and we talked about it a little bit last week, and, and I'll mention it a little bit later, but something happened with humanity that, that stripped it away of its intended glory. And Jesus is the one who purchased purchased back what was meant for humanity, and he paid with his blood on the cross. So he redeemed humanity and is making all things new. He's the savior. He's the one who came to make everything new and to, to remove the sting of death and curse and sin from fallen humanity. He saves sinners. That's what scripture teaches. He came to seek and save the lost. He's our friend. He's a friend of sinners. He ate with people who the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders deemed as unclean and unworthy, and they called them sinners. Though them, they themselves were sinners, they looked down upon the tax collectors and the prostitutes, but, but Jesus came and befriended them and ate with them and shared meals with them. And he offers to do the same for anyone who will come to him. He's our brother. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. So we are adopted into his family under the father. So God the father becomes our father and adopts us as full sons and brothers and co-heirs with Christ when we believe and are united to him through faith. He is our shepherd. So the Bible likes to describe humans as sheep. We, we can't figure things out on our own. Uh, we need a leader. We need someone who will, who will lead us and guide us to the places we need to go. Like in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, so, so Jesus is the one who, who leads us into the places that are good for us. And he loves us and takes care of us and goes after those of us who have left the flock. Jesus tells this great parable about leaving the 99 for the one lost sheep. So he's our shepherd. He's our light. In the, the time between the fall and Christ's death and resurrection, the Bible describes this time as very dark. There was a lot of death. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of suffering. But Jesus, the light of the world, came and shone light at his birth. He is the fulfillment of every Old Testament scripture and promise. So the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And the, the New Testament tells us that when we read the Old Testament, we're supposed to read it looking for Jesus. Every promise that God made to Israel and the nations, every one of them is fulfilled in Jesus. He completely and perfectly fulfilled the law when no one else could. And then every promise is met in Jesus and then offered to us. He is Lord, which means he is the highest authority that exists. None is higher, none is greater. And what he says goes, which means we need to obey him as Lord. He is the glory of God the Father, which is a crazy one to kind of think about. I love what John Piper says uh, as he defines glory. Uh, this is a rough paraphrase, but he says, 
the glory of God is the going public of God's holiness. So, so all of God's perfections displayed, that's Jesus, which means he's also the perfect and final revelation of who God is. He is the way. I know we live in a society that says, hey, you know, just anything is okay. Anything goes. We'll find our own way to God. No, 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 no. Jesus says that he is the only way to the Father because he himself is God. And outside of him, there's no way. And the the amazing part of that is that we're not just left on our own to to blindly find our way to God, but God himself came and found us. Uh, David Platt, he's a, he's a pastor, uh, gave this great one-minute illustration. Let's say we're at the bottom of a mountain and God's at the top. And some say that, you know, one, one religion, one set of ideas might take us up this sharp path up the mountain and another might kind of go this long way around and get us to God. But all paths get there, right? No, 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 no. In Jesus, we see that we can't figure out the path up to God. And even if we could, we are not capable of, of getting up there. But instead, God himself in the person of Jesus came and made a way for people to commune with and fellowship with and enjoy God himself. He is the truth. He is the absolute highest reality that exists. Nothing can be higher. He is truth itself, which means everything he says is true. Uh, and, and there's a response that that requires for us to believe it and obey it. He is life himself. He in and of himself lives by necessity of nature. He is life and, and he offers that life to us. He did all the work for us on the cross and through his resurrection. We just have to come to him and believe and his very life comes into us and we will no longer be dead and in darkness, but we will live eternally with him. He is the resurrection. We've talked a lot about resurrection on this podcast so far, and he's the one who initiates resurrection. He is the resurrection, the one who will raise every person who's ever lived at the end of the age, either to eternal destruction or eternal life. So he initiated and will finalize resurrection. He is king a lot of the problems of Israel's dark past were that they didn't have a king who was leading them in righteousness, but, but God himself, who is the rightful king because he created it, also entered into humanity and assumed the, the human throne of David, the eternal throne of David, who was the ideal king until Jesus came, and he, he leads his people in love and righteousness, he is king. He's true bread, true food, and true drink. So when we eat a meal, you know, we're going to be hungry again. We're going to be thirsty again when we drink water. But, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you eat my flesh and drink of my blood, you will 
never, no, never be hungry and thirsty again. So his person, who he is, satisfies us completely uh, from the moment we come to him forever. I mentioned that he is God's perfect revelation. Uh, Hebrews talks about how God had spoken up until Jesus through prophets and prophets spoke true things. Everything they said uh, that was inspired by the Holy Spirit was true and accurate and came to be, but it was incomplete until Jesus came in the flesh. So everything he says is perfectly in line with who God is and perfectly reveals God's nature. Satisfier of every need and desire. I think it's really cool that uh, when you think about physically, humans need a few things to survive. They need food. Well, Jesus is the bread of life. They need water. Jesus is the living water. They need light. Jesus is the light of the world. They need rest. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. People need clothing. Jesus promises that when we come to him, we will be clothed in his own righteousness. People need air. And through his spirit, he breathes in us and through us. So every one of our needs is met in Jesus, but he's also the one who satisfies all our desires for companionship. I already mentioned that he's our friend. He's the one who meets all of these. Everything we need and want is met in Jesus. He's the Holy One. He's set apart. He's distinct. He's unique. He's the Righteous One. He's never sinned. He's never done anything wrong in eternity or in time. He's always been perfect, existed according to a right order of things. He is love himself. Man, I think a lot of people need to hear that they're loved. And Jesus is himself love, perfect, unfailing love. Uh, the Bible describes Jesus as the fullness of God dwelling bodily. So every divine attribute you can think of, uh, knowing everything, being all-powerful, all of these things dwells bodily in Jesus. And that includes perfect beauty, perfect goodness, perfection itself, every attribute, full joy, all of these things Jesus is. All of that is to say, as Hebrews talks about quite a bit, Jesus is better. And it doesn't matter if it's whatever captures our attention here on earth or the Old Testament system of sacrifices and, and priests and temples. Jesus is better. That's not an exhaustive list, but I hope it, it gives you an idea of who this Jesus really is and why so many people have flocked to him and cried out to him because he's so good and so worthy. And friends, I, I really, really hope you get a taste of just how great Jesus is because he truly is better than whatever else exists. So then why did he come? I started this this podcast talking about uh, his birth and how we can know when he came. And, and we can't know for sure the exact day and time that he came. But we do know why he came. The plan for creation from eternity was for God to create an existence in which 
his people would receive his unfailing, perfect, infinite love and enjoy him forever through praising him and through getting to know him and through worshiping him and through cultivating his creation and working it and and creating things and and everything good that we enjoy about this world god created for our enjoyment music and sports we exist to be blessed and to be loved and to love that was the plan all along and and the the apostles especially peter talk about what was happening before christ and and he says this in his letter his first letter in verse 10 he says concerning this salvation which i'll get to in a second the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of christ and the subsequent glories so all that is to say that god created everything to be enjoyed but then things went wrong right and we talked about that last week there was corruption there was death there was wickedness people were turning their backs from a right order uh being people in their very natures who were against God and who were his enemies and deserved the punishment of the flood. And, and that, that wrath is still on people today. But, 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 here's the amazing news is that in Genesis 3.15, we talked about this in my first podcast, God promised that he would save the world. And so all of these prophets throughout time were were just waiting for, oh, when is this person gonna be here? Who is this person gonna be? And God gave us clues all of this all all throughout history of what this person would look like, who the Messiah would be. We get it in the Exodus when God took the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, saved them and made him his made them his own people, his inheritance, that's a what's called a type and a shadow of Christ who came and freed the captives to sin and death and slavery uh, and adopted them as his own people. We get another type and shadow in the tabernacle and the, and the temple system. So God wanted, after he had taken them out of Israel, to be with them and, and have them enjoy who he is. So he created uh, this system where you could sacrifice an animal to atone for your sin temporarily and enter the tabernacle, which is the place where God and man can fellowship. Well, that was pointing to Jesus. And in Jesus, or Jesus is the temple, the tabernacle where God and man meet and fellowship. And then, and then when you believe in Christ and put your trust in him, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells inside of you and you become a temple of the living God so that God is with you always and 100% for you and working on your behalf and fighting for you. And you can be with God always and enjoy his presence. And then you see in various figures throughout the Old Testament, like Adam and Noah and David, we get tastes of the ideal Messiah and all of these things and many others that we don't have time to cover point to Jesus 
And all of that is to say that this was the plan all along. Christ was going to come and redeem what had been lost. You know, I mentioned that the purpose of creation was to know God, which is the highest blessing possible. And he, God did it in love because there's nothing more joyous and more enjoyable than God himself. So he created people to experience the most joyous thing possible, God himself. And then Adam ate the fruit in the garden, and that sent all of history on this train wreck where in people's very nature, they are against God and corrupt. And they have guilt. They're guilty because of that. And then they continue to do things in their life that go against what God wants us to do. And and there's guilt and there's punishment that's accrued and judgment. But then Christ comes so that people who seek him and, and want him and come to him no longer taste this death and this judgment, but are given the right to be called sons of God through faith by grace and receive all of these blessings that I just talked about. And we get to know who Jesus is. And and again, like I said, there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. And so Jesus comes and secures this blessing that was intended for humanity. But more than just restoring it to what it looked like before Adam fell, he's resurrecting it to a higher level of existence and glorifying it to something unimaginably amazing that, that I'm looking forward to. And the way he did that, the way Jesus did that was choosing to lay down his own life. He alone in the history has had authority to lay down his life and pick it up. But he chose to say, I am going to die on behalf of people I love. So he came to earth. The Bible says that he became sin. He was hung up on a cross. He was crucified on a Roman cross and he died a real literal death. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. So all of the sin that dwells inside of us and all of our rebellion was laid on him and he took on our curse and he died our death. And then when he rose again, like Paul proved happened in 1 Corinthians 15, he rose again and vindicated his name saying that I in fact never did sin and defeated death so that all who put their trust in him never taste true second eternal death, but live the very moment they've come to faith in him and receive all of the amazing, amazing gifts that I've mentioned before and so many more people truly live because Christ paid the debt for sinners and offers his life and righteousness uh, and right standing and, and perfection to people who will come to him and trust in him and believe him and obey him. Uh, but the amazing part about obedience is, is that we don't have to slog through and say, okay, I sinned and now I have to figure it out. No, 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 no. Jesus promises that 
He completed the work and he continues to empower us so that we obey and become more and more like him. That's called sanctification. Man, this is a longer podcast than, than I expected, um, but I, I hope that my tone convinces you or affirms to you if you already believe that, man, this is, this is something amazing. This is something indescribable. And I've just barely scratched the surface. So friends, look to Jesus. He is worthy as the eternal God who became man and purchased forgiveness for our sins. He is true and he proved it with the resurrection. He is desirable and better. So friends, to finish out, I'm going to quote again the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he said this, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the gospel. It is good news. Friends, I pray that you believe it and come to Christ. Soli Deo Gloria.